The following audio is from Redeemer Anglican Church in Richmond, Virginia. More information about Redeemer is available online at RedeemerRVA.org. Daniel 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. And all the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and the sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he had heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid in the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. Then, at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came nearer to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to deliver you from the lions? 
Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent an angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God." And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. The holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John. Glory to you, Christ. This morning's reading is from John chapter 11, verses 45 to 53. As many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Well, once more, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new, welcome to Redeemer. Glad you're here. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve here as a pastor. Now, by way of orientation, we are in the season of ordinary time, where we join with the church around the world and throughout history in asking really a very simple question. What does it mean for us to live faithfully in our place and in our time. And followers of Jesus have been asking this question all through the ages. They asked this question as they met secretly in Rome in the second second century. They asked it as they rocked on ships crossing the Mediterranean in the third century. Followers of Jesus asked this question as they built some of the first church sanctuaries in the fourth century, as they huddled for worship in Northern Africa in the sixth century, as they huddled in catacombs in France in the 18th century. This question of faithfulness 
has been asked by peasant farmers and wealthy monarchs, by enslaved men and women of royal blood, by children in bare feet and by village elders, by savvy merchants in the marketplace, and even by exhausted parents at kitchen tables. The question of faithfulness is being asked this morning by followers of Jesus in China, in Norway, in Kenya. It's being asked at the top floors of skyscrapers in New York City. It's being asked in affordable housing projects in Jackson, Mississippi. And people like us are asking this question too. What does it mean for us to be faithful in our place and in our time? And as is our practice, we are taking this question to the scriptures. And this fall, we are taking it specifically to the Old Testament book of Daniel. And along the way, we have sought to answer this question in a number of ways. We've talked about navigating cultural assimilation. We've talked about trusting the rock. We've talked about refusing coercion. We've talked about redeeming humiliation. We've even talked about waiting for justice. And today, we're talking about hoping for vindication. As we begin, let me say a prayer. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. So uh, those of you who know our family well may have heard this story before, but a number of years ago, my wife, Rachel, uh, had the distinct privilege of serving jury duty. Uh, Some of you have done this before too, right? All of a sudden the call comes in, you cancel all your plans for the next two weeks and, uh, and you go and you serve our great legal system. So Rachel is sitting there in the courtroom, the trial begins and the lawyer, uh, this woman walks out and she calls her first witness and the witness, this elderly man goes to the stand, he sits down, he's sworn in and the lawyer brings out this big cardboard picture, uh, photograph. And she asked him a very simple question. Do you recognize this view? And the man vehemently denies it. No, I've never seen this before in my life. And the lawyer, confused, slows down and asks again, are you sure you don't recognize this? And the man becomes agitated and belligerent. No, I've never seen this before. And the lawyer sighs and hangs her head and says, sir, you're not being accused of anything. You're a witness isn't this the view from your front porch? (laughs) And the man kind of startled back into reality goes, oh yes, of course. Um, Sometimes things can be so familiar, you don't recognize it or you don't see it for what it is. For example, what is the color of the paint in the bathroom of your house? Do you know? Some of you don't know. You look at it multiple times every single day. And yet, if asked to remember, you don't really see it, do you? Sometimes something can be so familiar, you don't see it for what it is. That's a little bit like what our text is this morning. We have Daniel chapter six, Daniel and the lion's den, one of the most famous stories in the entire Bible. There are people who have never darkened the door of a church that know this story, right? And many of us are unlikely to understand this story and even less likely to take it seriously because of its familiarity. I mean, what serious, intelligent adult wants to be impacted and transformed by the story of Daniel and the lion's den, right? You're too sophisticated for that. I am too, right? We're okay hearing a sermon about some obscure biblical text and finding some sort of deep, rich, surprising meaning in it. But a familiar story like this, this is kid stuff, right? No way. If you get this story, you get most of what you need in this life and in the life to come. If you get the story of Daniel and the lion's den, you get most of what you need in this life and in the life to come. Now let's kind of set the scene here. 
uh, the prophet Daniel in this story is an elderly man. This comes late in life. And it's worth noticing that sometimes the gravest tests that we have to pass come at the end of life, not at the beginning of life. If you're one of those people that thinks that if you can just kind of get through teenage years and college years and young adulthood, you'll sort of, your life will sort of stabilize right around middle age, and then you'll just coast on through to the finish line in your later years. Not so. This test for Daniel comes at the very end. He's probably in his 80s, 70s or 80s at this point. Not all the tests to your faith come when you're young. And this is a story <clears throat> about living a life where you've kind of done everything right and still having things go terribly wrong. There's a profound unfairness to this story. Here's what's happened. King Darius has decided that he's going to rearrange the org chart on the Babylonian empire. Uh, Things are getting a little big and unwieldy. He needs to organize and delegate. So he um, goes ahead and promotes some folks to this sort of like czar status. Um, He calls them satraps. They are overseeing different parts of the Babylonian empire. There are three of those, and there's a bunch of other folks below them. And Daniel, this exile from Judah, is one of those three. And he does the job so well that word on the street is he's going to get promoted to number one. He's going to be right underneath the king and right over everybody else. And this makes the other folks, the other rulers, the other czars, uh, the text calls them satraps, a little envious, right? A little jealous. And so they put together a plot to bring Daniel down, even though he has done absolutely nothing wrong. This is a story about getting to the end of your life and having things things seem to end with this terrible unfairness. It's a story about the need for vindication, for someone to see you and to see your life and to give you dignity and honor for what you have endured. And as we're going to see in a few minutes, it's a story about excellence and envy and eternity. And I'm so sorry that all three of those begin with the letter E. I didn't really mean to do it. It just kind of happened. I'm sorry. Um, But if you're the kind of person that likes categories and organization and you'd like to take notes, you're welcome to jot those down. Excellence, envy, eternity. Let's start with talking about the excellence in this story. Daniel's excellence in his work is on full display. He has excellence both in his skill and in his integrity. And within his excellence and skill, he has this incredible, unique combination of natural gifts and hard work. He's naturally gifted for this political job, and he works very, very, very hard. His work ethic is supreme. Now, we probably all know someone who is naturally gifted, but just doesn't work that hard. I remember in college, I lived in a house with 10 other guys, and, and one of those guys, I'll never forget, truly one of the most one of the brightest, most intelligent human beings I have met to date. And yet, absolutely no work ethic. And it was so frustrating because the rest of us would spend hours and hours and hours in study and he would waltz into his final exam, having skipped nearly every day of class in the entire semester, having not even given the textbook a look and get like a B minus without trying. And we would like try to shake this guy and go, if only you tried, you'd graduate with a full 4.0 and go on to get full rides into grad school, but you don't try. And I was so jealous of his natural talent because I had to work my butt off just to like pass. We know people who are naturally gifted who don't work hard. And then we know some people who work very, very hard, but alas, no natural gifts, right? Uh, Some of you who know me have have heard me tell the story before, but there was a season in my life where the thing that I most wanted to do um, was play guitar and sing. 
um, and to do so kind of publicly. Like maybe that could be a career for me. And in fact, given the choice of careers between doing what I'm doing right now and doing what Orlando Palmer was doing here at the piano earlier in the service, I want to do that. Don't tell him. But that's the job I actually want. The problem is I don't have the gifts. And in fact, there was a time in my life when I was in full-blown denial of that. And I, in fact, took uh, voice lessons from a professor in college and had it professionally confirmed. I do not have the gifts. And in fact, this guy broke my heart when he told me, no matter how hard you work at this, you're not going to get better. (laughs) You can work hard, but if you don't have the gifts, you're going nowhere, right? So the prophet Daniel has both. He's got the natural gifts and he's got the work ethic. He's got excellence and skill. He also has excellence and integrity. No corruption, no bribery, no self-interest. He's not negligent. In verse four, as these other kind of competing rulers, these satraps, these politicians are edging uh, to try to find something wrong with him, it says, quote, because he was faithful, they could find nothing. Daniel is the paragon of faithfulness. He really embodies what Timothy Keller, a pastor in New York City, says, which is citizens of God's city are supposed to be the best possible citizens of their earthly cities. In other words, Daniel may very well have been the best Babylonian citizen, which is ironic because he is not ethnically Babylonian, right? And I wonder if the same could be said of us. Are you the best Richmonder? Now, I know not everybody in the room is a Christian, and that's all right. But if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, could you be accused of being the best Richmonder because of your faith? Daniel is a model of faithful presence. If you have a boss, you would like your boss to be like Daniel. If you uh, work with people, if you have coworkers or classmates, you want them to work like Daniel. If you hire somebody and you're interviewing candidates, you would like to interview a Daniel. If you uh, are single and you're on the search for a spouse, you would like to find somebody like this. Good spouse candidate, someone like Daniel. You want your kids to grow up to be like Daniel. Do you work with excellence? Martin Luther King Jr. uh, put it this way. If a person is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause and say, Here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. In other words, whether the kind of work you're doing is as mundane as street sweeping, which I don't think is a vocation anymore, right? Um, Or something as complex as investment banking or something as exhausting as solo parenting, do you do it with excellence? Have you put in your 10,000 hours? Are you on your way to becoming a master of your field? What does it mean for you to do your job as a Christian? Well, it certainly means more than doing your job with excellence, but it certainly does not mean less than that. Excellence in both skill and integrity is integral to the work of every Christian, no matter what your field. Could you be accused of this kind of excellence? Uh, One of the reasons why I think so many of us fall short of this kind of excellence as our field is we just settle for pretty good. As James Collins says, good is the enemy of great. And that is one of the key reasons why so, we have so little that truly becomes great. We don't have great schools, principally because we have good schools. We don't have great government, principally because we have good government. Few people attain great lives 
in large part because it's just too easy to settle for a good life. And some of you have crested and peaked in your area of work and decided that's good enough. It's short of excellent, but you've decided that's good enough. And along the way, some of you who are Christians, I know again, not everybody is, but those of you who are, have perhaps in your classrooms or in your dorm rooms or in, the, uh, in your neighborhoods or in your work environment, you've maybe sought to share your faith with coworkers and classmates and friends and neighbors, all the while doing a very mediocre job at your work. And what you may not have realized is that the work that you are doing and the faith that you profess actually don't go together. And the call of this text right up front is to labor with excellence. But be warned along the way, this text tells us that excellence in your work will not actually guarantee you favor with your coworkers and classmates and neighbors. It didn't for Daniel and it's not gonna for you either. Excellence incites envy. Excellence incites envy. Let's talk about the envy of the other rulers in this story. Um, Question for the class. Don't you just love it when your peers are better at things than you are? Doesn't it just make you happy? Don't you just love to celebrate their successes? Isn't it just wonderful when someone's more talented and better looking and things just go so much better for them than it goes for you, right? Just overflows you with joy at their wild and incredible success. No, it does not, right? Like you and I tend to envy and not celebrate the excellence of other people. That's because envy comes from insecurity, right? Envy comes from insecurity. And you probably don't have to look any further than Instagram, which is, after all, driven by envy, right? If you had to, like, if you could harness envy and put it into a fuel tank and create an engine out of it, you would get Instagram. That's what comes out on the other side, right? It's just humanity's envy harnessed for profit. Now, this is a true story. Most, uh, and I've, I won't share details or names because I wouldn't want to give, I wouldn't want to kind of out anybody. But a story I heard recently that happened right here in our church is that there are a lot of people in this congregation that think other people at Redeemer are doing so much better than they are. People who have everything together, who are more impressive and excellent and beautiful and their lives are just kind of so much easier and more successful than theirs. In fact, there was someone who felt like they uh, couldn't go to their small group and share what was really happening in their life because nobody else in the group was struggling the way they were and therefore nobody else would understand. Small group was not a safe place to be vulnerable and to struggle because of how impressive everybody else's lives were. And when we, me and some of the other staff people got wind of this, we encouraged this person really gently, hey, go ahead and try it on. Try being vulnerable. Just see what happens. Maybe you'd be willing to share just a little bit of your own struggles with your small group. And this person, to their credit, screwed up their courage and bravely admitted that this one particular part of their life was really not going so very well. And this is absolutely true. What they discovered was that every single other person in the room, every single other person in the room, struggled with that exact same thing and had also felt like it was not safe for them to admit that that thing was not going very well for them. That kind of insecurity can so quickly morph and germinate and grow up into envy. And that is the very sort of thing that can destroy communities. Envy begins with insecurity. It leads to a critical eye. 
And so I ask you, do your eyes automatically look for goodness in other people or do they look for flaws? In other words, do your eyes do that thing where you're scanning for problems in other people? I don't ask, I'm not asking what do you do on purpose? Most of us try to do the right thing on purpose a lot of the time. But what automatically happens? What's your default? Those who envy criticize the moment they think they have found a weak spot. A critical eye is a habit that is practiced over and over and reinforced until it becomes an instinct over which you no longer have control. And so for some of us, criticism of other people has become our instinct. You almost can't help it anymore. It just happens. Your eyes see flaws in other people. Your mind thinks critical thoughts and then your mouth opens and you begin to express them. And lest you think that I'm putting you on the spot to shame you right now, I'm really just describing myself. I don't wake up every morning thinking, now today I would like to hurt the people I love most in my life with my own criticism and judgment, right? I don't do that. And yet, it so often happens. You know, um, one of the goals that I have, and this is a little bit silly to admit, but one of the goals I have is that when I am old and when I no doubt have dementia, (laughs) my hope is that the kind of internal, critical, judgmental self, which is still all too alive and well inside of me, will actually no longer be there. And so that when my faculties are gone and I really just sort of instinctively react to people and react to the world, my hope is that by the time when I'm old and have dementia, what actually comes out of me is kindness and not judgment and criticism of others. And I know that if my faculties left me right now, that's not what would happen. So many of us know folks that are a little bit, you know, kind of getting close to the end of life and maybe some of their um, self-control and maybe some of their mind has begun to slip and, and they get very mean-spirited, right? And what you realize is that that mean-spirited critical judgment has actually always been in there. It's just been suppressed by self-control the whole life. And then now it's coming out at the end. When you are in your final days, if you lose your mind what will naturally come out of you? Would it be criticism of other people? Has that become your instinct? Envy comes from insecurity. It leads to a critical eye. And then in this story, surprisingly, well, maybe not so surprisingly, it leads to racism and prejudice. feels like a sharp turn, but here's what happens. These satraps, these czars, these rulers, they kind of huddle together um, and then they go to King Darius and they complain about Daniel. And here's what they call him. They call him, quote, one of the exiles from Judah. It's been over at this point in Daniel's life, 50 years since he was brought from Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah in captivity, but he is still labeled a foreigner, an immigrant. One of my favorite theologians, Christopher Wright, puts it this way. It's hard to tolerate someone else getting a promotion. It is even harder if that person comes from a different ethnic group or class or regional background, or maybe it's just the wrong gender. Then personal jealousy is linked to group pride and all of our human instincts to protect the in-group from the outsider surges up. Racism is a horrid and destructive cancer in society. And this story in Daniel chapter six shows where it can lead. So envy comes from insecurity. It leads to a critical eye. It can morph into something as ugly as racism and prejudice and eventually terminates in violence. 
We've talked in previous weeks about how much our society has a thirst for tearing down leaders and celebrities. I think it's actually an everybody thing, not just a some people thing, because most of us, in order to feel taller, just try to make other people shorter, right? That the excellence and success and beauty and, you know, great stuff that we see in other people, rather than it serving as something to be celebrated lovingly, love of neighbor in others, or something to inspire us to work with greater excellence in our own lives, actually becomes an opportunity to scan them for flaws, find the thing, bring them down so that we don't look so short. Carlos, Carlos Zafron uh, puts it this way. It's, this quote is a little bit savage, but listen if you can. Envy is the religion of the mediocre. It comforts them, it soothes their worries, and finally it rots their souls, allowing them to justify their meanness and their greed until they believe those things to be virtues. Such people are convinced that the doors of heaven will be opened only to poor wretches like themselves who go through life without leaving any trace but their threadbare attempts to belittle others and to exclude and destroy if possible. Those, by the simple fact of their existence, show up their own poorness and spirit and mind and guts. (laughs) Okay, that's hard. But the idea there is actually something that is true about the heart of every single human being which is that the successes of others actually throw into sharp relief our own failures. The greatness of other people throws into sharp relief our own mediocrity. And that germinates within us this kind of envy that morphs into criticism and even something ugly like prejudice against others and eventually a violent thought or a violent word or in this case even a violent deed towards other people to bring them down so that we don't feel so small. You see... The problem with this story is that it would be really nice to end the sermon with this rousing call for us all to go be more like Daniel, right? Go be excellent. Let's close in prayer. Instead, the problem is that we are a lot more like the satraps than we are like Daniel. The call for excellence in this story is overshadowed by the insecurity of envy. So how are you and I going to overcome our envy and live with excellence as we pursue faithful presence in our city? How are you going to do it? Well, listen if you can. Like the Babylonian high officials and satraps were envious of Daniel, so the Jewish Pharisees and Sadducees were envious of Jesus. Did you hear that in our gospel lesson that David read just a few minutes ago? Like the Babylonian high officials and satraps tried to find dirt on Daniel, so the Jewish Sadducees and Pharisees sought to find something wrong with Jesus. Oh, he's trying to trap him in his words or in his teaching, trying to dig up some dirt on the guy. And just as the Babylonian officials came up empty on Daniel, so the Jewish officials came up empty on Jesus. They can't find anything on him. Therefore, both parties conclude we're going to have to find something to do with faith, something to do with their allegiance to God. For Daniel, it was his loyalty to God in prayer. For Jesus, it was his claim to be the son of God, for God to be his father. And before Daniel was thrown into the den of lions, he went to his upper room. He opened his window that faced Jerusalem, remember his home city, which he was captured and taken from over 50 years ago, which still lay in ruins. And he looked out towards his home city and no doubt prayed for the day when Jerusalem would be rebuilt. And listen, in a parallel story, a week before Jesus went to the cross, He stood outside the city of Jerusalem, which at that time in history had been rebuilt since Daniel's day. And Jesus wept over the city because even though its buildings were intact, 
it lay in spiritual ruins. Both Daniel and Jesus look out in grief over Jerusalem, which is supposed to be the city of God, but which has become the city of man, the city of sin and death. And they both longed for a new city, a new Jerusalem, a city built by God where peace and justice and goodness would rule and reign. And like Daniel, Jesus was set up and then the trap was sprung. And like Daniel, Jesus was silent before his accusers. Did you notice as uh, Stephanie read the story from Daniel chapter six that Daniel doesn't say anything until the very end of the story? He's quiet the whole time. Christ in in the very same way is silent before his accusers. And like Daniel, the tomb into which the body of Jesus was placed had a stone rolled over the entrance and then sealed with the wax stamp of the political ruler. Like Daniel, Jesus was cast into the jaws of death. But unlike Daniel, Jesus felt the jaws of death close down upon him. God did not deliver Jesus the way he delivered Daniel. And here's why. All the miracles in the Old and New Testament are signposts pointing to something so much larger and more important than themselves. All the miracles throughout the whole story of the Bible do not point to the power of the miracle itself, rather they point to something in the character and the mission of God. You see, the point of a miracle is never to display raw power. If that were so, there would be much more impressive ways to display power. I mean, God could have like zapped the lions with lasers. That would have been way more impressive, right? And certainly would have gotten the message across. God's more powerful than King Darius, right? But he doesn't do that. He could have given Daniel a machine gun. That would have worked too, but he didn't do that. No, the miracle is so small and so subtle. God closes the lion's mouths. He makes them temporarily docile and safe. Why? Well, so that by de- delivering Daniel from the jaws of the lions, God might, direct our, might use the miracle to direct our attention forward to a day that is prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 11. Now, not everybody knows this text. Let me read it. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's the vision of eternity. Daniel's rescue from the den of lions foreshadows the day when all lions' mouths will be closed, when the violence and hurt and pain and death of this world will cease and that God's creatures will dwell in God's city in everlasting peace. It's a vision. This miracle in Daniel 6 is a vision of eternity. And how is that gonna take place? Well, listen, look at the cover art on the front of the liturgy that you received when you walked in. There's a lot of paintings and works of art out there on Daniel and the lion's den. Most of them are pretty cheesy. I really like this one. What's going to have to happen between these lions being temporarily tamed and the day when all creatures will dwell in peace? I love, one of the things I love about this painting is the facial expressions on the lions. <laughs> it's so funny and yet it's so beautiful. Some of these lions ought to be looking ferocious, but instead they are cowering. One of them is even bowing before Daniel, symbolizing his role as an image bearer of God and the creature's role to be ruled by the image bearer, the human being. 
Uh, the other, there's a line right in the middle that has this look on his face like he's ashamed and embarrassed. <laughs> What's going to have to have to have to happen between these lines being temporarily tamed and the day when all creatures will dwell in peace? Well, here's what has to happen. God himself in Jesus is going to have to enter the den of lions and not be rescued. Jesus, the Lamb of God, will be torn and eaten and ripped apart by the roaring lions so that us, the sheep of God's pasture, might dwell in peace with the lions. So just as Daniel was lifted up out of the pit of death, so Jesus was lifted up in resurrection out of death, vindicated by God the Father, showing us that the day when you and I face the pit, the day when you and I face death, when we face the jaws of death, we will descend but we will also rise and be vindicated by God. Listen, just as Darius, King Darius, ran to the den of the lions to crawl, call, call out in anguish, so we see the, in parallel Mary Magdalene and the other women running to the tomb of Jesus to find the tomb empty and their rabbi alive. In both stories, there is life on the other side of the grave. Listen, that's what makes this story not your typical religious story. You know, most of us would tend to think, we might not articulate it this way, but we would instinctively believe it, that the message of Daniel and the lion's den is, if you are excellent religiously, spiritually, the way Daniel is, then God will save you. Then God will vindicate you. He'll draw you up out of the pit. It's the excellent people who get saved. But this story is a giant arrow pointing to the story of Christ which actually tells us not just a different story, but the opposite, which is that even those who experience and feel and even commit all of the acts and words and thoughts and feelings of envy and bitterness and jealousy and resentment in this life, which is all of us, if we are in Christ, then we too will be drawn up out of the pit and vindicated by God. And that beautiful vision from the prophet Isaiah, that vision of shalom and harmonious peace with the lion and the calf and the child all resting together, that is a future that is coming to meet us on the other side of resurrection. That is the swift sunrise on the other side of the dark night. That is a vision of our eternity. And with it, if you have that, you can truly live with hope no matter how ferocious the lions or how dark the pit. And with that view of a hopeful eternity, you and I, if we tap into it, can begin to find the resources to leave envy behind for good. So, what if somebody is more successful than you? What if one of your peers is more beautiful and more talented and a harder worker and far more accomplished than you? So what? You have an eternity of peace and joy coming to you on the horizon. So what if somebody is wealthier or more popular or better looking or better respected or more admired than you in this life? You have an eternity of contentment and fulfillment and shalom and joy forever and ever and ever. Listen, envy thrives under the gloom of the immediate present, but it withers and dies before the bright dawn of eternity. So live with your eyes fixed on the eternal horizon, seeing the eternity won for you in the resurrection of Jesus. And then with that view, go and lead and be faithfully present in your city. Strive for excellence in your work. And for goodness sakes, don't quit your secular job to go into ministry. 
Go and be excellent in your work. Laugh at the temptation of envy. It's ridiculous with the view of eternity in mind. Go and be the best possible citizens of the city of Richmond. Followers of Jesus should be the best Richmonders because all who are in Christ will be vindicated. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the one who descended to the pit and had the jaws of death close upon you so that we might descend one day but also rise and be vindicated by the Father. Help us, Lord, to live with this beautiful vision of eternity before our eyes so that we might resist envy and live faithfully in our city and in our time. Help us, we pray, by your spirit. Amen.